From the courtroom to the tabloids, welcome to All Rise, the podcast that lets you be the jury. All Rise swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your host, Dylan Howard. Breaking news at this hour, Demi Lovato still hospitalized in Los Angeles some six days after she was found unconscious from a drug overdose in Hollywood. Joining me on the line is senior editor from Us Weekly and usmagazine.com, Jen Hager. Jen, what's the very latest on Demi's condition? So Demi is apparently, according to reports, suffering from complications related to the overdose. She is reportedly suffering from nausea and extremely high fevers, which could be uh, the explanation for why the hospitalization has lasted this long. It's not uncommon, though, in instances like this for the medical industry to be very conscious about releasing an individual. Of course, they either go into rehab or they go into some form of psychiatric care. Do we know her mental situation at the moment? According to sources that have spoken to us weekly, she is still resisting going to rehab. She has been used to calling the shots on her own for her treatment for the past six years. And her mother has brought in several um, addiction specialists, several psychiatrists that have told her she needs to go to a dual diagnosis rehab treatment facility that can treat her not only addiction issues, but also her psychiatric issues. And she's being told that she needs to stay for a prolonged period of time, longer than three months, which she is absolutely fighting. She only wants to stay for 14 days. So Jen, you've been covering this story and you're well-connected within Tinseltown. Tell me what your sources are revealing to you about how Demi got into this situation where she relapsed. So the relapse started, according to sources, apparently last March, early April. Um, She had, of course, successfully completed rehab in 2011, and she loved the program that she was at. It was called CAST, and it was run by Mike Bayer, who owns the rehab facility. She became very close friends with him, and he almost became like a surrogate father in her life. He was with her on a daily basis whenever she went on tour, and they eventually became business partner partners and co-owners, co-owners of CAST, the rehab facility. So earlier this year, she began to feel that Mike was abusing their relationship and trying to gather other celebrities um, to come to the rehab facility to speak about, you know, what it's like being in Hollywood and dealing with addiction issues. According to sources, Mike also wants to expand his brand. So she was feeling betrayed and used. So she fired him And she also fired her longtime manager, Phil McIntyre, who is best friends with Mike Bayer. That is how she got hooked up with Bayer back in 2011. So she said to both of them, I no longer need either one of you. I feel that you're exploiting me and I'm done with both of you. Well, that that would have been okay, but instead of just leaving it at that, she then began to go out and party. And at first it was in moderation, but then it was full force going out all night, you know, going on benders, 
doing drugs. And this is why a lot of her shows earlier this year were canceled when she claimed it was, you know, nausea or the flu or she had lost her voice. It was really because she could not perform because she was still either under the influence. People couldn't find her. This has been going on for some time. And Jen, her family has been quick to distance themselves from reports that it was heroin. What are your sources telling you? Well, sources have told me from the beginning that the night of the overdose that she was actually snorting and intravenously injecting a substance. Her family is adamant that it is not heroin. There have been reports that it has been um, crystal methamphetamines or some other amphetamine-based illegal drug. But what I'm told is that she was not only ingesting, but she was intravenously injecting as well, which is a newer element to her addiction. And if you talk to any addiction expert, they will tell you that when someone relapses, they relapse very hard and they will do, you know, whereas if they would have gone on a two-day bender before, now they will go on a five-day bender. And they think that their tolerance is much higher, but actually it's a lot lower because they hadn't been doing drugs for that entire time. So it's extremely dangerous. All right, Jen, fascinating and yet troubling insight on the ground there in Hollywood. Thanks very much for joining us on All Rise. Thank you so much for having me. So what is Narcan and why do Demi Lovato's friends allegedly have it on them? Well, joining us to discuss that and dig deeper on the information we heard from Jen Hager just a few moments ago are two fascinating experts, Dr. Nancy Irwin, a licensed clinical psychologist and the primary therapist at Seasons in Malibu, a luxury drug rehab and alcohol addiction treatment center. And Dr. Neeraj Gandotra. Now, Dr. Gandotra is an expert in behavioral science and can discuss that question I raised off the top. What is Narcan, Dr. Gandotra? So Narcan is actually a um, common name for the compound called naloxone, which is an opioid antagonist or blocker, as you would say, where it is given as an antidote to opioid overdose to block those effects. And it works fairly quickly. And Narcan's availability has been marketed specifically for those who have opioid dependence in settings where they may be at risk for overdose. Uh, Originally, it was for patients who were prescribed at least 100 milligrams of morphine or equivalent. But opioid-dependent patients, as well as those who are prescribed concurrent sedatives as well, like benzodiazepines. Naloxone and Narcan, as it's commonly known, is very effective in stopping or reducing the effects of an overdose. So let me ask you this question. If our friends had the drug in their possession, would it have been prescribed because either she or others within her circle were considered addicted to a drug that they may actually need this? in the ill-fated scenario of an overdose? Well, uh, I'll first say that Narcan is available without a prescription in 37 states, including California, because of the opioid epidemic. The Department of Health of those respective states have determined that a prescription is no longer required because they felt that a prescription would be a barrier to access. 
However, uh, it is indicated for patients who've had opioid dependence or who are currently taking opiates. So I think it's fair to say that they had it with them because they were aware that someone in their company might need it. Well, indeed, a source told us weekly that, quote, her friends knew this was coming because she'd been using so much again. And therefore, they said, according to this source, that Narcan was on hand in case something like this happened. So, Dr. Nancy Irwin, just how lucky is Demi Lovato? Oh, she's very lucky. And I do want to put out the word that, of of course, it's better to have Narcan on hand to prevent death. But we don't want people to rely on that. It would be, it it gets to be as foolish as um, relying on the morning after pill. You want to practice safe sex. So I would encourage her and anyone to get into recovery. But of course, you know, first responders have this. So it is highly effective, uh, but you don't want to rely on that. And and it underscores that it it is a conscious choice. If one keeps that on hand, then they're sort of planning to use again. And that's something you want to look at in treatment. And of course, Dr. Nancy Irwin, you work regularly with clientele of a similar status to Demi Lovato at seasons in Malibu, which of course many in the entertainment industry know because of its wonderful reputation. I wanted to ask you this question. How much does Hollywood contribute to one substance abuse problem? (laughs) Well, I think considerably. Um, It is glamorized still in many celebrity circles, rock stars, actors, etc. And there's, there's sort of that peer pressure of the elitist, if you will, and that sort of intertwines with the tortured artist complex, if you will. Every situation is different, so I can't, you know, give you a cookie-cutter formula, but we treat each individual on an individual basis and look at unresolved trauma, which 99 times out of 100 is behind this, in addition to the peer pressure, et cetera, and make any lifestyle changes, uh, if there's any dual diagnosis, meaning if they have, you know, depression or um anxiety or any other mental issue that needs to be addressed and and resolve this and and, and re-architect their psyche so they can stay healthy. What would your advice be to Demi Lovato? She's been open about her struggles, but what would your advice be to her today? Well, I really don't know anything about her background, so I can't begin to say. I mean, I'm a big fan of her music, but I have no idea um, what factors shaped her childhood, her young adulthood, what um, demons, if you will, are underneath that she's trying to escape. Because, look, everyone is the ultimate escape, and it's around because it works. It's fast, it's cheap, it's there, and you don't have to look at any of the unpleasant stuff for a certain time. So I hope she will begin to understand and others struggling with this, that that there are ways to sort out your past and find a way, find healthy escape, but more importantly, to process that stuff that's underneath, that's driving you to escape with this deadly drug. Not forgetting, of course, the opioid epidemic costs the United States more than $500 billion a year. That is frightening. There is an epidemic, it's a public health emergency, and instances like Demi Lovato go a long way to thrusting it into the spotlight. But what's important is to discuss that there are other ways in which to get help out there. 
Absolutely. And I do want to underscore the importance of her sharing this story and that she did relapse and she was she has had long pockets of being sober. So I do like to give her credit that she's willing to share her relapse and let people know, you know, failure is built into the dynamic process of recovery. Almost everybody stops smoking multiple times before they quit for good. So smart people look at those failures, if you will, as stepping stones on the road to success. So we learn from the missteps, see where you're vulnerable, where you're fragile, what's not working in your life, and carve out a pattern of a healthy lifestyle so you don't have to relapse again. Dr. Nancy Owen and Dr. Neeraj Gandotra from DelphiHealthGroup.com. Thank you very much for joining us on All Rise. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Natalie Wood's death. The decades-old case is making headlines again, and it's thanks to a new podcast, Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood, with yours truly as the host. Now, the 12-part series is going to break new ground on this case and offer new evidence that suggests a larger conspiracy. Now, last week on Megan Kelly Today, Natalie's grieving sister, Lana Wood, pointed the finger of blame squarely at her husband, Robert Wagner. Let's take a listen. Robert Wagner is now 88 years old. Right. What do you want to see happen to him? I, what should happen? I want him to tell the truth. I want him to be a man and to own what has happened and to be strong enough to do that, I mean, you, you, to tell the truth. You think he murdered your sister? Yes. And coming up after a short break, we have an exclusive interview with the woman who helped open this case back up in 2011. It's an interview not to be missed. Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner's first marriage, a fairy tale Hollywood union that enthralled America and the world, allegedly ended after she caught him in the arms of another man. Now, this is just one of many revelations in the blockbuster new podcast, Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. Now, the 12-part audio documentary charts Natalie's meteoric rise from child star to red carpet royalty and exposes chilling new evidence suggesting, as Lana Wood told Megan Kelly, that she may indeed have been murdered. But there is another voice in this, and a voice that has been at the centre of the case since she released a book a number of years ago. That book was titled Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor. On the line now is author Marty Rawley. Marty, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This case really catapulted into the headlines in 2011 when the LA County Sheriff's Department reopened the Natalie Wood case. You were instrumental in making that happen. Can you explain how you did that? 
before I had my book published, I had contacted the original detectives on Natalie Wood's case. I had contacted them years before also, but I told them that I was finished with my manuscript and I was going to put the truth out there. We had a great publisher ready to go with it, but that I would refrain if only they would take another look at Natalie Wood's case. I almost had the former sergeant on the case ready to give it a shot. And then he changed his mind. Ironically, he had become a private investigator, but they refused me. So I went ahead and had my book published. I did send a copy of the book to the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, and I never heard back from them. So I knew there was still more work involved, still more work needed to get this case reviewed. So After an attorney in Washington, D.C., a very prominent attorney, read my book, he started an online petition to get the Natalie Wood case reopened, which gave me an idea. How about if I put together a report of all of my findings, plus testimonial statements from those I had interviewed, and a request from Lana Wood, to reopen her sister's death case. I put this package together. It took about six to eight months to gather, to get everything just the way I thought would work best. And I asked the attorney if he would allow my package to accompany his petition when he was ready to send it. And he complied. We sent the package and within a few weeks after that, I was actually sitting with the new detectives assigned to Natalie Wood's case. Now, the information that you supplied them, I think from memory, Marty, it was in November of 2011. We supplied the information in September of 2011. Right. They reopened the case a few weeks after that, but they didn't make the public announcement until the Thursday, the week before Thanksgiving of 2011. And that's why a lot of people were saying it was a publicity stunt to coincide with the 30th anniversary of Natalie's death. That had nothing to do with it. It was strictly the timing of when finally all the stars aligned and they were ready to take another look at this case that needed it so desperately. Natalie Wood's homicide, well, (laughs) that it is a homicide investigation, but Natalie Wood's death was the worst investigated case in American history. I stand by that. My book has since been used in several classrooms to teach wannabe detectives how not to handle a death case. Now, Marty, one of the key elements of the file that you sent to the sheriff's department that ripped the lid off this then 30-year-old case was the involvement of the Splendor Captain, Dennis Deverne. Dennis is the key factor in this entire thing. His testimony is crucial. And that's what puts um, a tad of fear into him, more than a tad. Him being Robert Wagner. No. Well, it feared, Robert Wagner fears Dennis because Dennis was there. Dennis was just feet away from what happened but to you're Natalie saying that, that night. Dennis fears Robert. Dennis fears Robert Wagner because Wagner knows that Dennis is the key to this case. And so Dennis's testimony was crucial to this. And 
I had hired a polygraphist to test Dennis, one with 25 years in criminal uh, testing behind him experience, and Dennis passed with flying colors. The LASD also administered uh, a polygraph test to Dennis, uh, an extensive one. It lasted half of a day, and Dennis passed with flying colors. Some people like to say that Dennis changed his story or lied. Dennis never lied or changed his story. He was never given the opportunity to tell his story until we got the case reopened. Well, critics will say he told Star Magazine in an interview his story. Well, when we had, when Dennis told me that Natalie Wood's death was not an accident back in the early 1980s. I started going, I contacted the LASD. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. It was a closed case, leave it alone. So we started going to the media. I started contacting media outlets, mainstream media was afraid of it, but the Star Magazine interviewed us. And they published Dennis's account of the wine bottle smashing, the infamous wine bottle smashing that started the horrible argument aboard the Splendor the night of Natalie's death. And that's what got things going. But it still took all those decades in between to get it to the point it is today. Now, everybody knows I'm the narrator of Fatal Voyage, the mysterious death of Natalie Wood. I've been following this case for seven or eight years now. I am as fascinated by it as you are, Marty. Yes. I think we'd all agree that the 1981 investigation did not skim the surface at all about what really happened. It was a botched investigation. Botched, totally botched. And I'm not holding that against Detective Razor. I don't know what his motives were, if he was blinded by celebrity, if it's that simple, because a lot of people in the world couldn't believe something like this could happen to Natalie Wood, the dream couple of Hollywood. How could this have happened? Maybe Razor was blinded by celebrity, or maybe there's something more to it, as some people investigating this along the way have suggested and but nothing has been uncovered concerning razor it's most likely that he just did not do a good job and it's sad because he was close to retirement he told me himself that he was um, shorthanded when this happened his partner had was on vacation or out of work for some reason i forget why but he went there alone. He had, they sent some help. He just ignored everything. And Pam Eaker, the original, the first person at the scene, wrote a report that basically listed everything Robert Wagner said as what happened, as fact. They, they didn't treat it as a crime scene. They treated it as this terrible, tragic death, accidental death from the get-go. And then, you know, when something like that gets out there, that's the story that sticks. That's that's what people start to believe. And so when you uncover facts, people start to call it a conspiracy. There's no conspiracy here. This is your classic case of husband harms wife. Now, Lana Wood was on the Today Show with Megan Kelly. And she was point blank asked the question, as we heard a short time ago, whether Robert Wagner killed Natalie. 
Dennis has been a little bit more circumspect about what he said. He's only ever gone as far to say that Robert Wagner was, quote, responsible for her death. Yes. Why is there a difference between the two? Well, the detectives actually speak to Lana because Lana is the blood relative who is concerned. The other blood relatives are not concerned with this. And Dennis would be on the stand. Lana, maybe as a character witness of Robert Wagner, would be on the stand. Perhaps they would have a few um, people on the outer edges of this on the stand for different reasons. But Dennis was the eye and ear witness. So he has to be very careful what he says to the public. But make no mistake about it. The detectives know what Dennis believes and knows happened to Natalie Wood. So you're saying and, that Dennis has gone further than his public claims privately oh, with yes. the LA County Sheriff's Department. Yes, and he's to a frustrating point with this too because basically what we all want at this point, now that even the detectives are out there and naming Robert Wagner the person of interest, it's time to make an, an arrest. So Dennis is not going to let this just ride any longer. He will start to tell everything he knows publicly. It's time for them to do something. Robert Wagner should not be able, because of celebrity, to get away with his lies and what he did to Natalie Wood that night. So Lana Wood, on this very program last week, said Robert Wagner should be arrested. Do you and Dennis, you are Dennis's closest confidant, Yes. believe that he should be arrested. Dennis Deverne, and I can speak for him in this case, yes, we believe Robert Wagner deserves to be arrested yesterday. Not tomorrow, not right now. He should have been arrested. He should have been arrested 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. We completely believe he is responsible for Natalie's death and should be arrested. Why has he not? That's, you know, I think it goes to a DA wanting these days, after the O.J. Simpson trial, things changed. What could be more tight than that case? But you better go in there with a tight case, airtight. So much has been done in other cases similar to this with far less than they have in this case. And I believe it's time to let a jury decide. Let, let the public decide this and bring in the jury. Let, let, let them listen to the evidence, the compelling evidence in this case, and then say that this man shouldn't be convicted. Because it shouldn't be about whether or not a DA believes there's enough evidence to win over a jury. It should be that present the evidence. Let them decide. So I don't know why, other than because... Someone didn't see the way Robert Wagner has said, I believe she slipped into the water or was rolled into the water after she slipped. Those are crucial words. She rolled into the water. What makes you envision something like that unless it is something that you did witness? That's what a sociopath does. They'll add a little bit of truth to their lies. So I really believe that they won an airtight case, and in this case, no one saw Natalie, quote-unquote, roll into the water. 
there is so much evidence, strong circumstantial evidence, medical evidence, scientific evidence that could be used to surround how she rolled into the water. Well, the police in episode one of Fatal Voyage said that they believe she was unconscious before she went into the water. So if that is the belief, she didn't roll into the water. She must have been tossed. She had to have been tossed. She had to have been rolled into the water. And that's why nearby boaters did not hear a splash because she was probably put onto that swim step and rolled into the water. Otherwise, you know, that splendor deck is pretty far up, you know, a good 10, 15 feet, depending on the tides and the conditions, there would have been a splash. And I personally interviewed people surrounding that boat. No one heard a splash. Of course, there's, you know, people, witnesses, two people that have come forward that heard exactly what Dennis DeBurn saw and heard. So Dennis didn't actually, he heard them on the back deck and peeked out once, but other people saw the couple on the back deck having this terrible, loud fight. And then suddenly there was silence. So there's and then on at that point, Dennis was on his way to the deck and that's where he confronted Wagner. As a matter of fact, uh, someone from the LASD recently said Dennis met with Wagner in the main salon. No, Dennis met with Wagner at an open door, at an open door that led to the swim step. And Wagner was disheveled and nervous and screaming, you know, Natalie's gone, Natalie's gone. And D- Dennis was just shocked. He he couldn't understand what was going on. And that's when Wagner sent Dennis to search the yacht. And then, of course, as has been reported, they didn't even radio for help from the Coast Guard for hours. No, Dennis searched the yacht. Then they... Um, Wagner poured Dennis a drink and said, we're going to wait and see if she comes back. Dennis knew Natalie would not have taken that dinghy out. But yet, you know, here's this couple he worked for for seven years who he'd come to know and love. You know, he he didn't right away not want to believe Robert Wagner, but he knew better. He was so confused and they had just been drinking all night out at dinner. You know, they, they weren't wiped out drunk either, as a lot of people report. You know, they socialized a lot. They had their drinks with dinner and their cocktails. So this really wasn't that out of the ordinary. Maybe they drank a little more. It was a rainy weekend. But Dennis could not comprehend what was going on. And Wagner poured him a drink, told him to sit back and wait. Just pause for a moment those listening to this podcast, think about this. If your partner was seemingly lost at sea, would you pour yourself and someone else on the boat a drink, an alcoholic beverage, or would you try and find her? It's a fascinating question, and it kind of beggars belief to think that they didn't more actively begin the hunt for Natalie Wood. That stuns me, Marty. It astounds me, too. And Dennis wanted to. He kept pushing to put on the searchlight and get on the radio. Wagner absolutely refused. So that had Dennis thinking 
in his, you know, drinking state of mind too. Well, maybe I have to go along with this. Maybe she will return. Maybe this night was so bizarre she did take the dinghy. But then his other side of his brain would tell him, you know she didn't take the dinghy. You know it. That fight, that arguing you heard, something's wrong here. Do something. Finally, Dennis insisted that they call for help. But that was two hours after Natalie was gone. Two hours. And Wagner got on the radio and said, someone is missing from our boat. Not my wife, Natalie Wood. He said he even admits he didn't give her name to avoid media, to avoid attention and, you know, scandal. And Dennis was rather afraid those two hours, too, because in the back of his mind, he knew something was terribly wrong and he's being fed alcohol. And he was thinking, you know, what's next? Am I going overboard next? You know, he had spent the night with Natalie in a hotel on Friday night in Avalon, the other part of the Mm -hmm. island. Could Wagner have concocted this story that Dennis and Natalie were had something going on and they both disappeared and no one knows what happened? I mean, I believe Robert Wagner put Natalie's coat on her thinking it would sink her and she might not be found until it would be too late to even see the bruises on her body. But what happened was it was a down jacket and down floats just Mm. like ducks and geese Mm. down floats them and it floated Natalie. Thank goodness that coat was on her or she may not have ever been found. Well, Marty, as a result of your work, almost four decades of work on this case, Natalie Wood's death is no longer officially classified as accidental and the search for justice remains ongoing as part of this podcast project, Fatal Voyage, and of course, your ongoing work surrounding the case. And for that, I want to thank you for being on All Rise. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dylan. So who is Robert R.J. Wagner? Well, we learned in Chapter 3 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood, that he was supposedly promiscuous, and Natalie walked in on him with another man. So in this next episode, we take a look at how Robert got his start in Hollywood and we begin to make connections about the kind of man he was then and what part he played in the demise of his marriage to Natalie Wood. Plus, we have a blockbuster revelation about another relationship that Natalie had with a Hollywood megastar and a troubling revelation about the day she attempted to commit suicide. That's Chapter 4 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. And this has been Chapter 11, Season 1 of All Rise, the only podcast with the guts to tell it like it is. 